Hi, I'm Susan Ruth. I am a podcaster of the Hey Human podcast, an abstract painter, a songwriter, a short film screenwriter so far, and a performing artist. And we on the show today, Curiosity Bites, are going to discuss all sorts of interesting, crazy things about the human condition, the creativity of following the muse, uh, why we're all racist. <laughs> what it's like to converse with a KKK member, uh, all sorts of interesting, wild and wacky things. So stay tuned. Welcome back to part four of our delicious conversation with Susan Ruth. She is definitely a curious creative uh, songwriter, a uh, uh, song performer. I mean, she has albums. She is, uh, has sold screenplays as, as a writer. Her songs have appeared in movie, movies. She is a graduate of Second City Conservatory Sketch Comedy. She uh, failed high school and went to university and <laughs> did amazing things. She's also got a list of awards and honors that honestly is ridiculously long. And we're in our fourth part, a final part of the show. So we're going to jump right in, you know, and I've been asking at the end of each show, uh, Susan, for you to tell us where people can find out about you. But let's tell people where they can find you, as in find your mm. material, your albums, all those kinds of things. T tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, if you want to check out my artwork, there's a lot of them under SusanRuth.com. If you uh, hit the, or the artwork, it just says artwork, so it's easy. Um, you can see a bunch of my work there. Uh, you can always email me, like I said, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. My music, my most recent album, I have four. My most recent is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. And you can find that in all the music places, so iTunes and Spotify and Amazon Music and yada, yada, yada. So, And also, believe it or not, I have a closet full of CDs, which are these little round things that look like coasters, very shiny. <laughs> I've still I've kept some of my. Me too. I love my CDs. I, I, I've got to admit, I kept some. I kept some, and my wife's like, "We're actually going to move," and she's going, "You know, they can't come." Oh. And I'm like, "Well, unless you can find somebody to make them digital, they're coming, because <laughs> some of them are pretty rare. Right? Yeah. Some of them you can't find, right? Yeah. You know, the Bulgarian women's choir is not easy to find. Yeah. For so sure. tell, tell me a little bit about your, uh, why you titled the album, what you titled it. All, All I ever wanted, wanted was everything, right? Yeah. Well, it's cheeky, firstly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, that song in particular, uh, All I Ever Wanted, which is the title track to the album, uh, is about this idea that we put in our heads. And it speaks back to what we talked about in the first segment of we think we know what it is we're seeking. Mm -hmm. And we have to come to terms with who we are first. And then I, I often say to people that we make the, I think we get confused and we think, oh, how does it, the other person look like that comes into my life? What does that look like? Instead of thinking, how do I feel? What do I look like? What do I feel like? Mm -hmm. We're always going outward instead of inward. And so in that song, the all I ever wanted was everything song. Um, it's really about understanding oneself finally and knowing that what it feels like is that I'm different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. I, I, uh, I fully agree. I think that we are, we are highly conditioned for, for externalization. Yeah. Everything is a reference of something outside of ourselves. 
and and I think that in many ways that is the the most challenging thing of all is to take time to not be externalized and ask what do I want not what should I want and I, I will ask many people I know very well uh, in my clients often what do you want and they'll tell me and I go but what do you want mm-hmm. and they go what do you mean I, I said that no but what do you want not what do you what do you think you want? What should you want? But what do you actually, in your heart and soul, want? And, and oftentimes, it's nothing ex- nothing external at all. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah. So it's a tricky question. We it's we a spend a tricky question. Yeah, we spend a whole lifetime trying to get back to ourselves. I mean, that's yeah. that's what some of the the greatest biblical texts, not just the Bible, but any kind of tome that has to do with that, are talking about. The temple yeah. is in within that thing that you were talking about, learning to open up and be humble, that God self communion, if you will, yeah. holding hands with the universe. Yeah, just because you it, are the universe. Right. Let like getting mo- the most difficult, most challenging thing of all is moving one's ego to the side to let it, the greatest force of the universe, flow through you. And then those who don't understand that will see that what you're saying sounds egoic and it's the exact opposite of egoic, yeah, right? right? So because it's like, I'm going to let this come through me. Not only through you, but from you. Again, that communion, that intermingling, because if we're a chip off the old block, then then a piece of the universe already resides. I mean, it's a closed system. I talk about this a lot on the show is that we live in a closed system. Nothing exists that hasn't always existed. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, as you said that, so it comes through us, um, uh, but it's also coming from us in, in, the, in the cocktail of the creativity, because it's this beautiful mix, it's this melange of between this and that. And, the, and that's why, you know, we were talking before about, you know, three movies all come out at the same time, and they're kind mm-hmm. of the same story, but they're different because they came through a different vessel and that vessel, you know, and that vessel is the experience of the individual, the life experience of the individual it came through. And and in that context, you know, we talked about you uh, living in different places. You know, you, you and I talked about in a previous conversation about how you spent a year and a half in the UK. You had an English accent. You lived in Cambridge, Uh, you know, Monty Python, faulty towers, was an influence that has impacted you. Tell oh, us a bit yes. about the impact of living in different places, whether it's Nashville or Seattle or England or wherever it might be. Talk to us about how you feel that has added flavors to you. Mm. I understand how incredibly lucky I am to have been raised in a family that was a that understood the world is quite small. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for a lot of people, some people never leave their hometowns. They never leave mm-hmm. their states or, or countries or whatnot. And uh, I think there's, there's a feeling that the world is so big, it seems uh, like an impossible task to traverse it. Mm-hmm. My parents thought the other way. They understood that, you know, it's, it's the blue dot in space. <laughs> 
And so we did, we traveled a lot and they, they didn't make a big deal about it. They weren't schlepping, you know, 800 million things around to make the children happy. We just sort of went mm-hmm. and, um, which maybe is a, you know, that thing with this tangential, but you know how they say, oh, dogs will take after their owners. Well, kids will take after their parents. So if, if you're quite chill and, and calm and, and all that, the children will mirror that I believe. And I think that was maybe the secret to traveling. Um, but yeah, we got to go to lots of different places. One of my recollections of my first best friend in Cambridge, uh, Robin, he lived next door. He had every creature imaginable. He had turtles and rabbits and snakes and birds and he had ducks and things. And I would go over there and and it was wonderful, you know. And when we were in Greece, you know, I made friends with the little Greek children. And, and you know, you just learn to see things through their eyes. And what is, what is important to people in other cultures? And because of my mother and her studies, you know, I, I had an early fascination with mythologies and things. So that really impacts, you know, the Greeks are in a modern age, but it's certainly still yeah, deeply. everywhere you go. It's deeply embedded in the culture. Um, so, yeah, stuff like that, I think. And it, it made me it made me curious. It made me curious. How can you not be, how can you not meet somebody who's speaking another language? Well, I mean, there are plenty of people that aren't curious. I shouldn't say, how can you not be? Cause that's judgy, but, but I'll, I went on a cruise once and we were going through, you know, Greece and Italy and all this stuff. And I was with my friend and I said, listen, and we sat at breakfast and we listened to all these languages around us. And there was a particular uh, couple of women that were chatting and they were speaking, uh, I think they were speaking Mandarin and they were telling each other something that was making them laugh. And my God, they were laughing so hard. And then we started laughing because that's a universal language, that loving mm-hmm space and i think the more you're influenced by the fact that everyone's just doing their best you know that it really does open up floodgates in you yeah um you know as somebody who was born i was born into an environment where people didn't travel yeah um and oftentimes you know like many parts of the united states didn't even travel outside of their village their town their city um, and I, you know, I, I was deeply curious and traveled a lot. And, and I remember being interviewed um, in Saskatchewan for, for the uh, for CBC Canadian radio uh, about my travels and all those things. And they said, you know, um, they were asking me about what I learned from traveling. And I said, you know, there are there are two things to learn from traveling. You can learn from the culture that you're in. And one of the other things you can learn from it that I learned was I'm not saying other people do, but I chose to learn was that I am not who I was when I arrived. Mm. And they said, what do you mean? I said, you know, one of the problems we have, I believe as, as humans is we tell people who we were and then they, those people then tell us who we are. I said, so if you stop telling people who you were, you can become who you are in that environment. And so it was like, so when I was wandering through the back streets of Singapore or Hong Kong in areas where Whitey wasn't supposed to go, I never felt unsafe. Going through the back streets of Seattle 
um, with my mate in 19, uh, <laughs> 1989, you know, uh, long hair, uh, had a long black um, Versace coat on and a Versace suit, and I had long hair down here, slick back, looking very sort of mafiosa, um, with my mate, walked, turned off a street, and I said, oh, we didn't know where we were, turned off a street, and suddenly in the street where they are, there are um, oil drums with fires inside them and people, you know, hanging around them. And it looks pretty freaking shady. And my mate said, oh, my God, you know, we should run and turn around. I'm like, nope. And he goes, why? I said, do what I do. And we walk through and we get to the other side. He's like, how did you do that? Hmm. He goes, you know, you're the master of the force. And I'm like, it's not that. And he goes, what is it? He goes, I said, I'm one of them. And he said, how can you be one of them? You look like this. And, you know, these are all homeless people. I go, because I don't carry that. I'm not willing to carry that. That's who I was the minute I walked into the street. But once I'm in the street, I'm no longer that. This is my appearance. But who I am energetically is them. Because I lived in the ghetto. I lived on the brink of homelessness for years. I know their vibe. So when I walk past the guy and I give him the nod, he knows that that's a brother. A, a, a brother, a, a not of a brother. And if I'm in the back streets of Hong Kong, back in the in the early '80s, late '70s, early '80s, and the the street gangs, it's not a problem. Doesn't matter. And wherever I went, I would be those people. I would allow mm. myself to to soak that in, to to marinate, if you will, energetically in the environment. And then when I'm in that environment, to in marinating in it, there's something I take forward from that that flavors me and this is what i was talking about before about flavoring it flavors me so that i can bring something back did you have that experience absolutely i had that experience constantly then and now and i do want to make a comment because you said you grew up quite poor and i do think that obviously limits people from the world experience but it doesn't anymore because now you can watch a movie you can read a book you could always read a book but you can you can watch planet earth and all that stuff and and i encourage anyone to not let finances limit them because there are other options there are other ways to to delve into the world at large and it's a really beautiful space to be in and as to the other question yes um i see myself as a mirror and i see others as a mirror constantly and if that's that's certainly one thing that hey human is is um made an even stronger idea in my mind and that when I'm interviewing a murderer, for example, I know that I'm capable of murder. You know, when I'm interviewing the grand dragon of the KKK, I know that should I have been raised up in his family, I would be him. And in fact, I don't even have to be raised up in his family to have things that I have done that could be perceived perhaps as, you know, because it's in all of us. None of us are separate from being racist in some on some level or another none of us are separate from being sexist or or i i see myself in all people they are me and i am them and there is a hyper awareness that now is so integrated in me that i don't think about it right and it's like you said, it's like, you are my brother, you are my sister, because you're me and I'm you and there is no division. But I think that's a very important 
piece there. Uh, one of my quotes is, you don't live in the world, you live in the mirror. Mm. Everything is a reflection of you. Um, and I learned that from uh, Pathasareje, who was my teacher of Vedanta. And, and I remember going to meet with him and feeling very sad because I'd seen something that had gone on in the news, you know, whatever it was. And, uh, and it was about a murder, right? And, and he had said, he said to me, what's the matter? And I said, you know, I saw this and there was this murder and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, and I was outraged. Like, how could somebody do this? How could somebody take this life in such a horrendous, not even accidental, but a violent, vicious way? And, and every time I would spend time with him, at the end, he would leave me with something for two weeks and, and would not give me any more instruction on it. It was like, this is your mantra. And the mantra, um, and I, by the way, I got the same mantra from my Buddhist teacher, my, the Buddhist monk I, I lived and studied with four years later. Exactly the same mantra. And, the, and I smiled when I got it. And the mantra was, the murderer lives in me. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, I want you to walk around for two weeks and say, the murderer lives in me. I was like, I will not. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm 20, <laughs> 22 years old. I will not. 23 years old. I will not. And then he's like, no, just try it. And of course, it teaches you enormous compassion. Because what I realized was every time I lose my temper or I'd get upset about something, that mantra would come up. The murderer lives in me. What is the distinction between murderer and non-murderer? It's a fraction of a second for most right. people. Yeah. And uh, does that capability exist in me? Of course it does. Of course it does. Because I am an animal. And at the animal level, at an instinctual survival level, that is entirely possible. But it's, at the same time, the saint lives in me. Yeah. At the same time, the, you know, whatever it is lives in me. And by that, we can all declassify ourselves and start to see and, you know, and I'm fortunate that I grew up in a family uh, where my mom was fierce about not being racist, you know, because, and she it came from the fact that we were we were Jewish. And she's like, you know, when they finish picking on the blacks, they'll pick on the Jews. So That's right. you don't have the right to be racist, um, you know, and she would point to recent history at that point, you know, Second World War, Nazis, et cetera. So we learned that pretty early on. And so my friends were every possible culture that, you know, where we grew up, it was poor Northern England. So there was a lot of poor immigrants who lived there. So sure. they, were, they were my friends. At that same time, though, that understanding is, is what matters to each of us is this, this mirror reflection. So talk to us about having those conversations you've talked about. How do you end up talking to on your show? Hey, human, I want to tell people about it. Um, which is the podcast, how do you end up having conversations with people who are grandmasters of the KKK and murderers? How does that happen? And what, what's your, I guess, what's your most delicious story from that? Well, the KKK one was an intense, I went to his house. I was scared. Um, sure. And my friends were like, you're crazy. Don't give this guy a voice. And I, kept saying i'm not giving him a voice i'm sh i'm i'm trying to find out why he thinks the way he does i need to know myself why i'm not racist because of why he is racist mm -hmm. it's that thing of like i don't know who i am until i know who i'm not i don't know who i'm not until i know who i am and so my dearest friend uh 
said, oh, well, that's crazy. And, you know, I'm not racist. And I was like, yeah, you are. She's like, oh, sure. I was like, we all are. She's like, no, she's like, I'm not right. I'm like, okay, you, you may be on a, on the surface level. Of course not, but down deep because it's nearly impossible to exist on a, on a planet of different humans without having a sense of tribalism that is innately racist. Yeah, and I think and- just, just to pause that for a sec, you know, I think that this is part of the problem is that we all get defensive about being racist yeah. All right. Uh, because of course it has horrible connotations. Of course it does. Right. And and so I would I would say to people, if you're listening to this and you go, well, I'm not a racist, and that's mm-hmm. a stupid comment. Okay, let me just give you this. Are you tribal? Yes. So what that means is if you were born in, in the Congo, right, and you're black, you're tribal against another black group. That's racism. If you just think of it as tribalism, it's a mm-hmm. very easy thing. If you are a Man City fan and you're around Manchester United fans, you're a racist, quote, quote, you're tribal about your soccer team. If you're a San Francisco team versus another team, you're tribal about that. That's all that racism is. It's a bias towards your own. And once you get that, you understand that, oh, okay. It's innate. Yeah. By my also isn't necessarily, uh, you know, in the shadowy things, you know, it's the, it's the, I said to my friend, it's like, when you walk down the street late at night, if a white dude with a backwards baseball cap, you know, wanders by, you're just be like, Hey, if a black guy walks by in the middle of the night, you're going to like clutch. You may you not even know you're doing it. There might right, be a right. micro movement. You might be, or you might feel so compelled to say hello because they're black. That's a kind of racism because yeah. you, for God's sakes, don't let this black guy think that I'm racist. So I'm going to overcompensate, yep. you know, and it's, it's, there are, it's, it's a strata <laughs> for sure. Um, so yeah, I went to his house and I, and I knew that he was going to say multitudes of things that I didn't agree with or believe in, but I knew also that I wanted to hear what he had to say because I was curious and we had, he's funny and engaging because he's, his job is to go out and recruit other people. Of course he's funny and engaging. And to think that he would be, you know, a 12 horned monster is an ignorance because that's the thing that I was trying to show is that these are, these are your everyday folks. They live next door to you. They're your teachers. They're your babysitters. You know, they're your bosses. There's the casual, you know, jokes about driving. If somebody is Asian, you know, all that kind of, you know, all they're, they're you. It's, It's like that thought will pop in your head. That has to be acknowledged. Mm hmm because it means something, you know, anyway, so we get to the end of it. And in the beginning, of course, he was N word, N word, N word constantly. And I just kept saying either African-American or black and, and trying to say, well, have you thought about this? Not saying you're wrong, but saying, have you thought about this and getting to the end of the, by the end of the conversation, he was saying Mm African-American, which was, I mean, I don't, that was huge, you know, and he started thinking and I did a, a postscript to that show because he had reached out to me a couple weeks afterward with a list of uh, black inventors. He's like, this can't be true. Is this true? I saw this on the internet. I said, I'll tell you what, Richard, I'm going to research this and I'll get back to you. And I did. And I said, look, 
several of these people reinvented a wheel. They, they took a great idea and they made it better. And others came up with it just out of the blue because of circumstance. Like the woman that invented the, the cataract laser surgery because her mom was going blind or, you know, whatever it was, or the guy that invented the stoplight because people were running into each other with their carts and things. Um, anyway, he wrote back and he just said, that's so cool. I mean, what? And after the, the episode aired, I got a call from that friend. And she said, I have some soul searching to do. And I said, why is that? And she said, because that man, a grand dragon in the KKK said things that I've thought before. And I couldn't believe that I'd thought something that that person had thought. And I said, that's why I did the show right there. Because they're not, they're not necessarily monsters. You know, they're not ogres in the basements. They're just people. Yeah. And, and, you know, you and I were talking even at at the top of this show about how you and I have been flavored by the travel, but you can just as easily be flavored by the non-travel. And what I mean by that is, you know, the analogy I give all the time to people is if you're born in the Southern United States in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, tell me you can't tell me you cannot be racist. Of course you can. Everybody around you, if, if people around you are saying, you know, black people are monkeys, right? That's a horrendous thing to say. But you don't know it's not true because, and I, the analogy I give all the time is okay, I want you to imagine you're born in a village and two plus two is five. Right. In that village, you go in a store and you see something that's for sale and it's five, and you give them a two twos and they go, okay, thank you. And off yeah. you go. Yeah. It's not until you leave that village that you realize two plus two isn't five. Yeah. You have so to be taught. You, you have to you be have taught. To be taught. You have, well, not even, even beyond teaching, which can often be indoctrinating, which yes. is what, often what happens, but yes. exploring and be curious. And so, you know, I think that it's, I, I'm, I want to look at a racist, first of all, as you are a product of your environment. So what happens if I move you out of your environment? Does that go away? If you ever saw the movie American History X, um, which most of you probably did, um, you understand that that's an environment. And when you're removed from that environment, because his best friend in prison becomes a black guy who saves his life, right? Um, I actually know personally uh, one of the people who was characterized in that movie as one of the uh, the one of the uh, neo-nazis who i've spoken at the un with so you know it's it's environmental and it's and it's you know you talked about being engaging it's how they're you're engaged with something talk to us about the murder how did you end up having a conversation with a murderer i've actually interviewed two murderers a female okay. and a male one who's currently incarcerated and one who had been uh freed and I want to speak really quick, though, to the thing. It's like you can take a racist out of its environment and and they will still continue to be racist as a choice to be made. It's that question of do I let things in that will change my mind or not? Right. 
But there's no it. chance of everything coming into your anything new coming in if you remain in that environment. That's right. my point. But yeah, but if you take them out of the environment, they may still have that 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 sensibility. And yeah. unfortunately, and it is a bummer because to choose hate over love in any instance is to me a bummer. But uh, to to that question about the murders, so um, both of them had committed their crimes while high on drugs. Mm. Uh, it's not an excuse, of course, but, you know, uh, and to your point, if you let the gatekeepers go away or get them super freaking high, they're not going to maybe stop you from right. doing a thing. And <laughs> I mean, we've all been enraged before. Of course. We've all had dreams that have been violent. You know, it's 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 in us. And of course. We are, we are an animal. Absolutely. We are the ape, <laughs> you know, we are the chimpanzee, um, then that chimpanzees are violent. Whew. Yep. Yep, very and, violent. Yeah. And very territorial. And I mean, look at any mob it doesn't, you can't really tell the difference between a mob fight and a, a chimpanzee fight really. Nope. Um, Maybe more. So how did you come to interview those people? Why did you? Oh, uh, so I had come across um, the mail um, through another podcast. It was called uh, Life. What was it called? Life on the Life on the Inside. Mm -hmm. And he does a podcast about where he interviews people incarcerated. And so I reached out and said, Hey, I'd love to have you on the show. And so we had a phone conversation and he's, he'll be incarcerated for life. Um, so you and, spoke to him on the phone for your yes. show while he was in uh, on the inside. Yes. And they allowed that. They do. Yeah. And then, oh, good. yeah. And then the woman, she had been released because of a whole series of events. One, first they deemed it in her state unconstitutional to put someone to death. Secondly, she was a kid when she was incarcerated for life. Um, so that was considered unconstitutional. And then they, the, she had come forward as a teen and said, one of the guards raped me. Nobody really did anything about it. And then he went, he got transferred to another prison later on. He did it again. And then mm -hmm. they listened to her and then they came to trial and then they let her out for time served. She's a totally different person than she was at 16. Now that she's 40 something. Sure. You know, um, and she what? said, I did this thing and it was a bad thing and I make no excuses for it. There are people, of course, incarcerated who don't give a shit and no. will never, you know, so, but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for as far as reaching out to me, like I, I started, I interviewed a guy, a private investigator, uh, Ellis Armistead, really fascinating guy, uh, and he referenced a bunch of the cases that he worked on, including uh, here in America, we had a, a guy Nathan Dunlap who went into a Chuck E. Cheese and murdered five people. Mm, yep. And he is incarcerated in Colorado, and I'm going to be interviewing him coming up, and uh, so. I am intrigued by the darkness in myself yeah. and therefore I want to talk to the people that don't have the gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, again, the murderer lives in me. I think that that is, I think there are a lot of people who are very afraid of that looking into their own darkness 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I honestly think that that's why people are very intrigued. But I mean, you know, as well as I do, one of the most popular categories of podcasts are these true crime podcasts. Yeah. Um, and it's because it gives people a voyeurism into their own yeah. darkness. Without they don't touch- admit that. Yeah, without touching but, it. That's right. exactly There's right. A voyeurism into the darkness of themselves without having to touch it. But the growth is only in the willingness to examine it in self. Now, you don't have to touch it in self, but you need to examine it in self and, and say, you know, well, how, where is that in me? You know, it's not about yeah. going out and, and seeing, well, could I commit murder? Just go with you could. So what is that? Let's look at that. Of all your conversations, of all the shows that you've done, you've done how many now? You told me. Uh, uh, 274, I think. Right. Is there one that, or maybe more than one, but is there some that really stand out for you that sort of yeah. awakening for you? Uh, well, certainly the Grand Dragon. Um, right. There was a man, Jeff, uh, he he was a first responder in 9-11 and mm. got sick and had a heart transplant and that heart failed and then he got another one. So he's on his third heart. And that was incredibly moving um his talk about being humble his feeling on some levels that he didn't deserve so many chances mm-hmm. which is bizarre because he's an he's an incredible human being and set God, touching that, yeah i mean self-loathing is a tricky thing and not that i think he was self-loathing but it's that thing you speak to is like people they don't even know how to touch their own pain and or where it even comes from half the time. And which is why we live in a society that's so angry and why it's been so easily tapped. That anger was so easily tapped into mm-hmm. and, you know, liking what you hate has rewired our brains to just gobble up this, this sickness as it, you know, and on, it's an unfortunate thing, but anyway, um, the neuroscientists, I love talking with neuroscientists. I just had Dr. Moran surf on the show. It was really fascinating. Um, uh, Donnie Stedman, Dr. Donnie Stedman, she works in uh, forensics in the body farm here in Chattanooga uh, in the South. And she told stories about how where, where she has gone and being able to find mass graves in other countries and to return turn people back to their villages where without the the bones or without the people they feel their spirits roam and it's terrible in between space for these people and that was so moving and she took me into the bone room which rows and rows and rows and rows of boxes just plain plain brown cardboard boxes with a mf for male or female age of death and perhaps how they died and then you pull down the box and you open it up and talk about a humbling moment to see a box of bones and know that there are a thousand boxes of bones and if you were to open any of those boxes good luck figuring out whether they're male or female or how old they are what color they are or what their religion is or you know any of that stuff it's it's like yes that's the truth the truth of the bones you know that's the thing what 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 did that say to you that moment of looking in those boxes that we are all the same thing we're just 
we're just seeking at different paces or, you know, we're learning at different paces and some it's not my fault and, and just the luck of the draw to be born into my family that had its own issues, but that I wasn't born into a family that is struggling desperately to feed its children, you know, and that I will die at age, you know, seven with flies in my eyes. It's not that child's fault either. You know, it's no. not Richard Nichols fault to be born as a great, great, great grandchild of a founder of the clan. It's not his fault. Now, mm. He has the luxury of growing up and, and doing, you know, learning more and shifting that state of being into something that serves the world perhaps better. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, we are, it's a freaking crapshoot, you know? Well, again, I, I think you're right. Um, and, and one of the things that I think is really important for everybody to, to grasp in this wonderful soup of humanity is that yes there are infinite amounts of choices uh, and infinite amounts of opportunities or whatever term you want to use and at the same time you know we we've been talking a lot in this particularly in this section about looking into the darkness right and and looking into the darkness uh looking into one's own darkness uh is, is so important because to put it simply um, until we can do that with ourselves, we can never have true compassion for another. And, and that willingness to look into the places, you know, as, as Jung said, um, and Campbell talked about it in the myths, you know, the treasure that you seek can only be found in the cave you fear to enter. It's in that dark place that we must examine. And it's easy to judge it in another. It's the reason we get so irate and it's the reason for all this crazy shit around cancel culture is a lot of that would fade away if we'd look in the mirror first, if we'd look at Amen. our own darkness, like you talked about with your friend and, and racism but just looking into that dark place and at the same time coming to this conclusion, I believe is what's useful. And it's part of my central philosophy for life. And that is this, everybody, don't matter who you are, everybody, black, white, green stripes, hmm. racist, non-racist, whatever it is, Jew, Muslim, Christian, atheist, everybody is trying to feel better. Right. everybody's got a level of pain and you look at them and you say, but you know, hold on a second. Susan was born into this family, academia, uh, obviously decently well off in the U in the U S education opportunities, blah, blah, blah. You don't know the pain. And you look at the person in the street and you go, you know, they're a drug addict and they're a user and blah, blah, blah. You don't know their pain. And because the person on the middle of the, you know, as you go down Hastings Street in Vancouver and you go to back alleys, and you see the people with needles in their arms and you can see them cleaning areas using their coats because they just, you know, they're fucked up and you go, you don't know their pain. And the person who pulls up in the, in the, in the Rolls Royce at the side of that same street, you don't know their pain. Pain is disguised by the person it's involved in and everybody's trying to cope and everybody's trying to feel better. And once you get that, 
You stop looking at people as better or worse, and you stop minimizing your own pain because you have to recognize whatever's driving you is also your pain. You're growing up in a family that you grew up in caused you certain pain. And as a result, you explored avenues that you wouldn't have explored if you hadn't been born into that pain. Same for me, same for all of us. And that is the roots of compassion. And then when you, to get to that compassion, how do you do that? You stay curious, my friend. You stay curious about what is this person trying to feel better about? Not for me to judge it, not for me to evaluate it, certainly not for me to fix it, but for me to have compassion that I too am in pain. That's right. And that I too want to feel better. And I can do that. I can feel better by making others suffer and minimizing my pain by distracting myself, by making them suffer. Or I can, or I can deal with my pain directly by dealing with myself. That's the question. And that, in many ways, interestingly, is, I believe, the original muse. I believe the original muse is always pain. Hmm. That's my belief. The original muse is pain. It doesn't have to remain the muse, but it is the original muse. It's the desire for something better for yourself. It's the desire to express the pain you're in, or it's the desire to relieve the pain of others. That's my final. I 100% agree with you on that. And I also think that hate is love and people don't really understand that either, that it's a speaking to tribalism and I'll use Richard again as an example that he looks for people to indoctrinate who feel lost and broken and unloved and hate becomes love. Absolutely. If you want, if you want to know more about that, listen to the podcast I did with Tony McAleer, where we talk about how he was, uh, the chief recruiter for the neo-Nazis um and and why well because he felt loved in that environment yeah so you're absolutely right yeah absolutely right susan it has been a joy and a pleasure thank you so much for being with us really enjoyed it loved our conversation excited to be on hey human with you and reverse the tables but again (laughs) before we go away please tell people where they can find out more about you and your albums and all the different ways to reach out to you Yeah, you can always email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. You can find the podcast at heyhumanpodcast.com or anywhere you listen to your podcast. It's across all the streaming platforms. Uh, Susanruth.com is a great way to find me for all the things as well. And this has been a true pleasure. Wow. My favorite thing in the whole world is conversation. And this did not disappoint. I appreciate it. Yeah. Very much. It's been a pleasure and honor. And for you, dear listener, remember you can chat about this show or any past shows by going to our Facebook group. It's Curiosity Bites. Just have a look in there. We'd love to you to go in there and chat about it. But you know what? We always need, we definitely need, you know, there's, I looked at it yesterday. There are 1.75 million podcasts on the planet. Lord. That's a lot of podcasts, right? And some of them are not around anymore and some of them are, but it doesn't matter. We are swimming in an ocean of podcasts. We really need your help because these shows, I believe, the, I believe, it's my belief, maybe it's my screwed up illusion, but I believe these are important shows 
talking about important subjects and expanding us all. So I really encourage you to stay curious about the shows, but also to share them with others. You know, we spend this time with you. We do all these things to make sure that you get this information. Just make the feedback loop a little bit stronger for us, if you would. Rate, review, subscribe to the show wherever you listen to it. Write a review. We really appreciate that. Put it out to other people. And you can write to me. Susan's given you her email address. My email address is dovadovbaron.com. It's easy to find me. Or you can send me a DM on any of the four media, uh, social media platforms and just tell us what you loved about the show, what you learned from it, and what you're going to do with it. We really appreciate you. We want to say stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. Until next time and another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites, this is Dove Baron. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. I'll see you next time here on Curiosity Bites.